Section 14 of the End of the Middle Age, 1273 to 1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 French History, 1328 to 1380, Part 2. This peace, which ended the first stage of the war, was negotiated in 1360 when Edward had made a fresh invasion, this time in the north of France. His campaign was not very successful, the French knew better than to risk another pitched battle, and the English failed to enter into Reims or Paris. Finally, on the receipt of very bad news from Scotland, telling of fresh incursions and an alliance with the Dauphin, the English king made up his mind to treat. The conference as to terms was held at the little hamlet of Bretigny near Chartres, and the treaty was confirmed and formally signed at Calais. The terms, although Edward gave up his claims to the throne, were of great material benefit to the English, and show that the crown was a pretext rather than the motive of the war. In return for this renunciation, Edward was to hold in full sovereignty, without homage or allegiance of any sort, Guienne, Poitou, and the surrounding states of the southwest, and in the north, Ponthieu, Guine, and Calais with its environs. France was no longer to help the Scotch, nor England the Flemings. The other clauses related to the conditions of King John's release, which, as we have already seen, were never carried out. Shortly after this, the Black Prince established his court in Bordeaux, the centre of his independent government as Prince of Aquitaine. A pause in the war furnishes an opportunity for considering the actual condition of the country during the struggle. Knightly deeds of arms sound romantic and picturesque in the pages of Foissart, but there was a reverse side to the picture and a very black one. As the war dragged on, the king fell deeper and deeper into financial difficulties, and the mistakes already made by Philip the Fair were repeated with additions. Dues on sales continued, a gabelle on salt in which the king had a monopoly and which all were forced to buy in large quantities was introduced, and the coinage was depreciated to an unheard-of extent. Meanwhile, the burden fell almost wholly on the poorer classes, endless exemptions being sold or given to the rich and noble. At the close of Philip VI's reign, pestilence came with all its horrors to augment the misery of the country. The Black Death wrought fearful havoc here as throughout all Europe. Some estimate the deaths at one-half the population. In Paris, when the plague was at its worst, 800 people perished in one day. Even royal oppression and deadly sickness were not the worst evils of the unhappy country. The armies on both sides were largely recruited from mercenary soldiers of different countries whose only livelihood was war, and when a truce for a time put an end to the struggle, these brigands, as they were called, were let loose on society with no means of supporting themselves but pillage and extortion. The poor people fled before them as from a prairie fire. Women and children sought refuge in caves and underground hiding places, afraid to trust themselves to the light of day. Always a scourge, they were organized into regular bands or grand compagnie after the Battle of Poitiers, and began a career of systematic plundering. 
establishing themselves in some feudal stronghold they not only ate up all the surrounding country but amused their idle moments by persecuting torturing and robbing the wretched peasants whom they despised as rustic clods anything they thought could be done with impunity to jacques bonhomme these soldiers of fortune were often high-born warriors and the french nobles themselves cared little for the humble tiller of the soil except in so far as he was their own property and a part of the livestock on their estates such a condition of things could not be endured for ever and there was a murmuring and stirring throughout the country which might have warned the selfish feudal baronage that the people had rights which would one day be asserted the towns were the first to begin the struggle against privilege and oppression it was a time when trade was beginning to be more considered when guild associations were formed to carry it on and the example of the flemings and van artevelde may also have had some influence on the burgesses of france it was paris alone however which was able to take any leading part the french capital being always considerably in advance of the rest of the country the real leader of paris was the provost of the merchants who from a simple director of the trade upon the seine had become the chief official of the town and head of all the burgesses in thirteen fifty five this office was filled by etienne marcel a man respected by all and chosen on several occasions as leader of the tiers -etat, as the representatives of the towns were called in the states-general both philip the sixth and john had recourse to the states-general in the hope of getting more money by their help the spirit of growing independence is shown in the words addressed to the king by the towns as early as thirteen forty seven most powerful sire you must know by what means you have conducted your wars in which you have lost all and gained nothing despite their efforts however they were unable to introduce improvements in the system of taxation the nobles were too strong and equality was unattainable when the capture of king john had put the government in the hands of his eldest son charles a boy of eighteen an opportunity seemed to present itself and on march third thirteen fifty seven a sort of charter of liberties was drawn up chiefly through the agency of marcel which was the first real attempt to check the royal power and to give the people a voice in government according to this document a commission of thirty-six twelve chosen by each estate was to superintend every branch of the administration the states-general were to meet several times in the year and to be consulted on all matters of importance a good coinage was to be established and never altered again without consent of the states the nobles were to be restricted in their privileges and no private wars were to be allowed the french historian michelet says of this great ordinance that it was more than a reform it was a change of government and that though it was a change for the better such a step was dangerous in the face of a foreign foe the prince or dauphin footnote dauphine was an old imperial fief sold to france in thirteen forty nine from which time it was always bestowed on the eldest son of a reigning king who thus acquired the title of dauphin as he was called signed the document but it was obvious that he did so under compulsion and king john sent from england to annul all that the states-general had achieved 
Up till now nothing but praise can be given to Etienne Marcel. He had taken the lead against real abuses. He had raised the spirit of the Parisians and fortified the town in case of foreign attack. He had drawn up a scheme of reform, democratic but not violent. He now becomes involved in a policy less possible to defend. Once started on a career of reform, it is very easy to be driven into revolution. His first mistake was to join hands with the King of Navarre. His second was to make use of the Jacquerie. We have already alluded to the misery suffered by the peasantry at the hands of the nobles and the brigands. No wonder that they rose in revolt at last, and no wonder that in that revolt they imitated only too closely the evil deeds of their own oppressors. The final impulse was given by an order to repair the feudal strongholds, a work which fell to the lot of the serfs, who saw in these castles the worst engine of their oppression and who rose in fury. The peasant was still half-civilized and brutalized by ill-treatment, and his revenge for past oppressions was appalling. Like a herd of wild beasts, the Jacques poured over the north of France, burning, ravaging, killing. No man, woman, or child was safe from their blind thirst for blood. It is possible that Etienne helped to stir up this rising, although it is certain that he disapproved strongly of its excesses. So did the leader of the peasants himself, William Kahl, who tried in vain to organize a moderate revolt to obtain remedies, not vengeance. Whether responsible or no for the outbreak, Etienne encouraged an attack made by the Jacques on Meaux, where the Dauphin's wife and many other noble ladies had taken refuge in strong fortifications known as the market. The terror of the besieged was great. Any fate they felt would be better than to fall into the hands of the enraged peasantry, but they were saved by the opportune arrival of a Gascon force returning from Prussia, who fell upon the vilain, little black and badly armed, and saved the situation. Marcel gained little through these allies, who were put down with a severity which equaled their own excesses. Thousands suffered death, little trouble was taken to distinguish between innocent and guilty. The cry of the nobles was death to the vilain, and Etienne writes that cruelties were committed worse than ever were done by vandals or saracens. The peasants had spoilt a good cause by ignorant violence, and the result was more oppression and worse treatment even than before. Meanwhile, within Paris itself, things were going badly. Marcel had made himself head of a regular party, distinguished by the wearing of red and blue caps. One day, followed by a host of supporters, he penetrated into the Louvre to overawe the Dauphin, whom he found in the company of the two marshals of France, Clermont and Conflans. Etienne addressed the Dauphin and blamed him for not restoring order in the kingdom. I would do it willingly, replied the youth boldly enough, had I the wherewithal. Bitter words ensued and the followers of the provost, roused to fury, slew the two marshals so close to the prince's side that his robe was splashed with the blood of the murdered men. Marcel made him wear the red and blue cap to save his life, and actually dared to demand his approval. What has been done, he declared, was to avoid still greater peril, and was by the will of the people. 
The Dauphin could do nothing at the moment, but Marcel had not strengthened his own cause, and he imprudently allowed Charles to leave Paris and so form a rallying point for all enemies of the burghers. The defeat of the Jacquerie led to the fall of the provost. The nobles, after crushing the peasants, remained in arms and rallied round the regent, who was thus provided with an army for the siege of his own capital. Etienne, meanwhile, went a step farther in the wrong direction by calling the great companies to his help. He had enemies within the city now as well as without, and the King of Navarre was a very doubtful ally. He had brought a mercenary army for defense of Paris, but was secretly negotiating with the Dauphin, and finally withdrew with his troops to Saint-Denis. In these straits the provost, as a last hope, planned to open the gates of Paris to Charles the Bad, and to proclaim him King of France. He was found at midnight with the keys of the city by Maillard, one of his own magistrates, and in past days a trusty friend. Etienne, Etienne, what are you doing at this hour? he asked. I am here to guard the city of which I have the government. By God, was the reply, you are here for no good at this hour, and pointing to the keys, which betrayed his purpose, Maillard slew him as a traitor with his own hands, whilst his followers overpowered those of the provost. 31st of July, 1358. So perished a man whom it is very hard to judge. His early career was full of promise, but he seems to have become narrower and more selfish in his aims as time went on, until he, who had striven to give a real constitutional government to France, died in a treacherous endeavor to maintain his own ascendancy. But it is easier to condemn than to act under circumstances of so much difficulty. Etienne Marcel failed in what he had attempted, and there was no one else who ever attempted it. In 1364, the death of King John put his son, the regent, on the throne as Charles V, a very different man from his father or grandfather. Pale and thin, delicate from a childish illness, which had also left his right hand swollen and weak, so that he could not hold a lance, he was not the popular ideal of a king in those warlike days, yet he won for himself a position which neither of his predecessors had held. His surname of the Wise partly came from his love of books and learning, partly from his cautious and cunning character, and it is true that he ruled his country with a wisdom that had excellent results. He did nothing to strengthen the popular element in the government. The States-General only met once during his reign, but if his rule was despotic, it was capable and orderly, and it gave to his subjects a feeling of security which meant more to them than democratic control. Only on its financial side can bad mistakes be found in his policy, and even here he won popularity by checking the debasement of the coinage which had done so much harm. In the struggle with the English, he introduced the plan of avoiding battles, and so leaving the enemy to all the dangers of a hostile country, with no great successes to compensate and to raise their spirits. In the war, the king was ably assisted by one of the greatest soldiers of the age, who introduced into the French army some of the discipline and subordination which had been so lacking in the earlier campaigns. Bertrand du Guesclin came of a good Breton stock, though his was a younger branch of the family, 
and in rather humble circumstances. As a child he was so ugly, so rough, and so intractable, that though the eldest son he was disliked by his parents. His mother used to make him sit at a table by himself that she might not be annoyed by his odd face and awkward manners, and the younger brothers were served before him. On one occasion, when Bertrand was only six years old, he was so furious at this treatment that he upset the whole table and behaved like a mad thing, but a nun who was in the house soothed the boy and prophesied great things for his future, after which he was treated with a little more consideration. Many tales are told of his youth. As a boy he would drill the village children and conduct hand-to-hand -hand battles. When he was seventeen he took part secretly in a tournament, dressed in borrowed armor, and unhorsed all the knights who rode against him, except his own father with whom he refused to fight. In the end his visor was raised and he was recognized to the intense surprise and pride of the father, who had shown him scant consideration hitherto, but who now equipped him with arms suited to his position and let him take part in knightly exercises. Bertrand's earliest military experience was in the Breton War, whereby his great personal strength and courage, and by the skill with which he conducted skirmishes and sieges, he earned a reputation which won him knighthood and brought him before the notice of the highest in the land, whilst he gained the love of the people by his constant resistance to the evil deeds of the brigands. With the reign of Charles V, peace was temporarily established, and the long Breton struggle was brought to an end. At the Battle of Auray, thirteen sixty four, Sir John Chandos, probably the ablest of all the English captains, was victorious over Duguesclin, who was taken prisoner. Charles of Blois himself was slain on the field, and the aspect of affairs thus altered. As a result, John de Montfort, son of the lion hearted Joan, was recognized as Duke, and for a time the country was at rest. Cessation of war, however, only meant added misery to France as long as the ravages of the free companies continued, and it was partly to provide some occupation for these professional soldiers that the French king took part in a Spanish dispute. On the throne of Castile sat Pedro the Cruel, a man so hated by all that his half-brother Henry of Trastamare found ready support when he disputed his title. Pedro, amongst other ill deeds, was reputed to have murdered his wife, a sister-in-law of Charles V, and this gave Henry an excuse for claiming his help. Bertrand, at the head of a large body of mercenaries, was sent to fight for him, whilst Pedro won over the Black Prince, who made the great mistake of his life in consenting to assist the man whom he looked upon as rightful monarch. Prince Edward and Chandos, at the head of a large force of Gascon and English, were successful at the Battle of Najara, or Navaretta, captured du Guesclin, and restored Pedro, 1367. Nevertheless, it was an ill day for them. As they lingered in Spain to await the promised payment for their services, which never came, the whole army was wasted with disease, and their leader brought back with him across the Pyrenees a shattered constitution and an empty purse. The former was past cure. The latter he tried to refill by a heavy hearth tax on his principality of Aquitaine. Money he must have, if he were to fulfill the promises made to his soldiers, 
promises which Pedro had entirely repudiated, but the expedient was fatal. The Gascons were poor and proud, the nobles were not accustomed to be taxed, and the result was an appeal to Charles V for help in this emergency. Pretexts were always at hand for a renewal of the war, 1368. Both sides could point to unfulfilled terms in the Treaty of Bretigny, and a phase of the struggle began in which every advantage turned to the side of France. Bertrand was ransomed and made constable, the highest military rank in the country. Chandos was killed in a skirmish. The black prince, soured by ill health, lost his last chance of popularity in the south by the ghastly massacre of the inhabitants at the siege of Limoges, and went home to die. Henry of Trastamare, who with his own hands had killed Don Pedro in a quarrel, was now king of Castile, and aided the French with a fleet which blocked the coast of Aquitaine. In every respect the English were inferior to their enemy, and the end of Edward's reign saw his possessions reduced to a little territory round Bordeaux and Bayonne and the town of Calais. Charles V completed his successes by the final humiliation of Charles of Navarre, who, having spent his life in playing fast and loose with both sides, ended by having no friends at all, and crushed between France and Castile, died ruined and impoverished, despoiled of all his rich territories in France. The French king was nearing his own end. He was not to die, however, without one failure. In 1379, he tried to unite Brittany to his own demesne, with the result that he roused against himself a united and successful opposition which reinstated John of Montfort more strongly than ever. The death of his great constable also was a loss not easily made good. Bertrand died while besieging the brigands at Chateauneuf, and the keys were given into his hands as he lay on his deathbed. No place did he besiege which did not surrender to him, living or dead writes an admiring chronicler. In a very few weeks he was followed to the grave by Charles V, 1380, young still in years but worn out by disease. The country was left in a very different condition from that in which he found it, but though he had done much, the seeds of future troubles were still left in those three small pieces of English territory. End of section 14